Hey there, Intrepid Bike Shed listener. We've been nominated for the Best Dev Podcast in the first annual Hacker Noon Noonies Awards. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love if you could cast a vote for us and let the world know that you care. We've made a nice short URL for you to follow so you can find the voting page at tbot.io slash noonies. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash N-O-O-N-I-E-S. And we'll also include a link in the show notes. Thanks. I've learned so much about Postgres. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm not singing now that it's recording. You have a song? No, I have no song. Oh. I mean, I have many songs, but none of which will be sung. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, what's new with you, Steph? Ooh, what's new with me? Oh, I'm enjoying GitHub's uh, recent beta feature that they've released. Since it's in beta, I don't know if you're in that group where you can see it. Which one? It's where you can jump to the definition of a method or a function. Yes. So you can click on it and it'll take you right there. As long as it's in the same repository, it'll jump you right there. It's really neat. I'm liking it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love things that make code navigation, like make the code come alive. Things like ESLint or RuboCop or suddenly my code is like more vivid and real as opposed to just like text on a screen. Uh, I wonder what they're using behind the scenes, though. Oh, uh, I don't know. I read a little bit snippet about it, but they didn't talk about any of the technical details. It's not supported for all languages, so I think mm-hmm. it supports Python, Ruby, TypeScript, JavaScript, and Go. I just know that Ruby is one of the hard ones to do that with. Like if you're in a Rails model and you're like, where did this method come from? Well, turns I ha- out. <laughs> I Yeah, I haven't tried it to see if it would fail, what it does when it fails. Like. If I think you can't it just find it. Silently doesn't provide anything, but like it could be C tags, could be a bunch of other things. I've spent some time trying to teach my editor how to move around Ruby, and it's one of the harder languages to move. And so I'm just interested. Maybe I can track that down and see what they're doing. But I am in the beta. I'm happy to report that I'm part of the, <laughs> the Cool Kids Club. It's very nifty. It's a nice just like addition to the whole experience. And yeah. I feel like there's a fun opportunity there where if you click on something and they can tell you're in Ruby and then they can't find it due to some metaprogramming, there's got to be a fun screen that they could show you that's got to be related to Ruby. Be like, we don't know. An angry unicorn just like looking around furiously (laughs) but very confused. Yeah. I use a Chrome extension called, I think it's Refined GitHub. It's by Syndrosaurus whose name I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing every time I say it, but he makes a lot of things in the JavaScript world, very prominent uh, open source developer. But he makes this thing called Refine GitHub, and it just adds a bunch of features to GitHub. So it's one of those situations where I don't actually know when I look at GitHub, whether it's a GitHub feature or a Refine GitHub feature. Uh-huh. And so that showed up, and I was like, oh, wow, they really... Oh, wait, GitHub did this. Okay. <laughs> What kind but, of features does this add? I'm going to be honest. I have no idea. Because <laughs> uh, you don't know think, what's GitHub and what's the plugin. So the thing that's interesting is they tend to introduce the features in a way that blends with the GitHub UI. So they'll in, dynamically inject a button onto the page, but they'll use the classes that mirror the classes of GitHub buttons. And so it's just another button next to the existing ones. And that's why I don't know which things are which. I feel like it's things like plain text copy from the view of the file. I think that's a feature that they're adding, but again, Mm. I'm not even sure. Actually, a lot of the features have been upstreamed, and um, particularly the, I think it's the Paper Cuts team at GitHub has been tasked with sort of 
low-hanging fruit sort of usability fixes. Like, mm. oh, it'd be really nice if we could link to this thing or the little sidebar links for getting a permalink to a line and a file in mm -hmm. GitHub, as opposed to linking to the file on master where that line can change, you get the permalink to the commit line, et cetera. I think that existed in refined GitHub first and then GitHub proper added it. And the value of that permalink is so it will always point to that code even if it shifts the in lines or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so like line 10 within this file on master whatever's at that line can change over time because mm -hmm. master you're constantly committing new code but if you have the commit hash in there then you have very much defined the thing and you will always go back to it so if that function moves inside that file it'll follow the function no it's basically just that line. you're pointing okay. at that line at a point in time oh i see it's for that specific commit yes got it yeah okay. so the url actually updates or the one that you copy ends up being updated instead of saying this file on master at this line it says this file in this commit on line 10. And so then it's a permanent link that will never change because the commit can never change. It's funny, I've been using that feature and someone else asked me why I was specifically going that route to copy a link to a line and then sharing it. I was like, I, I don't know. I know it's a good reason, <laughs> but I couldn't remember. So it's funny that this came up today. Yeah. So well, there we go. Timing. Now we've, we've closed some loops. But again, I actually have no idea if that's part of Find GitHub or not. Uh, it just blends in so perfectly. Someone here at ThoughtBot did something similar with tell me when it closes, right? Where there's now an yep. easy extension or button that you can click and it will add that particular PR or what you're watching to tell me when it closes. Yes. Yeah. So someone introduced, uh, a, again, a Chrome extension that injected a button and it did the same sort of trick mm -hmm. where it looked like a button from GitHub. But then, and we haven't actually talked about this yet, but uh, GitHub has actually implemented tell me when it closes natively which I'm equal parts sad and happy to see. It's like, they can do a better job. Already their implementation is better than ours because it handles reopening and then further closing. So mm -hmm. at some point I just need to shut down, tell me when it closes. But yes, currently, tell me when it closes exists and there's a magic Chrome extension to inject a button. Yeah, that's, like you said, that's that's great that they have it because they can do a, a good job with it. But then it's also sad to see like a, a fun, useful project no longer become relevant. Yeah, I, probably the thing that I'm saddest about is that that project ended up being a really good pairing exercise or like small sample project, but very much a real project. It has mailers, it has background jobs, it has scheduled jobs, a whole bunch of things, but none of it was terribly complicated. So it was this really nice example app that was real, that we were running in production, that we used a lot of times for pairing interviews. And now if we shut it down, it's like, eh, we'll probably just forget about it. So I'm not sad to lose the thing that is Tell Me When It Closes, because the feature now is just better supported. But I am sad to not have that nice little example app anymore. I mean, we still do. It's still running because I'm too lazy to actually shut it down right now. But Sure. Well, and it's nice to have that to, like you said, to pair on. And we try to pair on stuff that is relevant, that we're truly using and not some canned exercise. So that's all right. You'll, you'll find new problems. Mm. And those will be fun new projects to pair on. It's always new things, new edges of the internet to uh, refine and simplify. And But yeah, so uh, what, uh, what have you been up to? What have you been working on these past few weeks? The past few weeks, I feel like I've run into a lot of interesting things specifically with Active Record and Postgres and working with a project that has a much larger database than some of the other projects that I've worked on. So let's see. The Active Record stuff that I ran into, I'm still thinking about and how I'd like to handle it. But it's essentially when I want to do some fancy querying with Active Record, and I want to return all the columns for a particular table, but then I also want to alias and return another column for another table that I've perhaps joined with, and then have an accurate representation of this object to then continue to use. So Active Record does 
I want to say it's neat because it is pretty neat what it does, where it, if I alias a column on a different table and then when Active Record returns those results and maps them to the object that I'm using, I can still call that alias function on that method, even though it doesn't really exist on that object. I mean, nothing really exists on Active Record objects as far as I know. What? <laughs> All right. Now that I'm actually thinking about it, Active Record either reflects when it like boots up the class for the first time uh-huh. and says, like, what are the columns in the table and defines the methods at that point, or it uses method missing and then within method missing does define method so that the next time the method's actually defined, but it's like, oh, does this exist? Let me look in the PG results that I have for that record for, for this row and then goes from there. But I see. So it's, it's always being like built based on the columns. Yes. Very, so then- very dynamic behavior. And so I, I think this thing that you're describing... It sort of falls naturally out of how Active Record does its magic, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a double-edged sword, and I think that was sort of what we ran into with it. So to kind of get some concreteness to this, since it's a bit vague, if I have two tables, uh, let's say I have a table called roller coasters and a table called theme parks, and roller coasters belong to a theme park, so it's going to have a foreign key to that theme park table. So if I want to do an inner join on those two and return all of the columns for roller coasters, but then also return the name of the theme park, when I get back that data, then mapping it to just the roller coaster object, I can still call like dot theme park name or whatever I've aliased that table as. And that's the part that I wasn't sure how to handle because it just it just works. But then if I want to recreate that particular object in a test, that feels funky. Like I now have this representation of an object that doesn't actually match what's in my model. So I think what I ended up doing is mapping the results over to a presenter to then at least elevate the fact that, hey, there's a special method that's now defined on this object, and I just want you to know about it, since otherwise it's not obvious. And that worked, but I still ran into the situation where it wasn't easy to recreate that object in a test because it's being passed over to another class, and I want to test that class in isolation. So I ended up with that test just building up the correct data and then letting it run through the query. So then I do get back the correct representation of this roller coaster object with this theme park name method on it. But it it still doesn't feel great. Like I'm still figuring out like which approach I like or what approach I would take next time. Yeah, I think the like clarity and expressiveness and, and safety to a certain degree, like how do we know that that will be there? If someone changes the query subtly, then this method and this data that we were trying to access is just gone. And so it it comes down to maybe reuse and things like that. Like if this is a very special case object just for this part of the system, then maybe it's okay. But if this is a more generic, like if our model always asks for this extra thing, then that gets weird. There's an interesting parallel to GraphQL stuff that I've been playing around with where, of course, I'm going to GraphQL. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry, you saw my face. (laughs) I did. I did. Those of you in the audience can't see Steph's face, but I can. (laughs) It just amused me. (laughs) Uh, It's my new favorite thing. But within it, if you have like a component, a React component, and you've got a GraphQL query, and you want to have some type safety around that, you can actually generate the associated types. And so each query that you're making isn't getting all the data back for a given record, like say roller coasters, like how many rows and how many seats and how many loops, say those are all the different fields. Maybe for one view of it, you're only getting back how many rows and how many seats per row, but you're not getting how many loops. It would be an error to try and access how many loops on the roller coaster record within that context. Mm -hmm. Because you know for that query, you're not getting it. And so the nicety is with some of the tooling that's been built up, particularly Apollo's command line code generation stuff, you can generate a type, like a TypeScript or flow type that is specific to that query that says, you definitely don't have access to how many loops. 
And for the other two, you do have access to them and here's what the types of them are. I really like that idea of like, this is the data that I have that I care about in this situation. It's actually the data that I'll have available rather than having a global type that defines like roller coasters have these fields which have these types. It's not quite true. And sort of the same thing could be true within Active Record because you can do a subselect. It says like select ID and name, not select star. Suddenly you don't have those other methods. Mm-hmm. I so rarely see focused select statements within Rails just because yeah. it's so easy with an active record. You just you don't treat it as if it's really making a database call. But mm-hmm. So I think you found the other edge of it where like that magic got extra weird because I think, was it a count that actually came into play? Yeah, so there were a couple instances where I've seen it. So it's used fairly common throughout the application that I'm working on. And one of them that tricked me was a particular count where it took me a bit to realize how the count was being calculated and the fact that we were doing it in SQL, which made sense since it's a large table and we're trying to increase the performance of that query. So we are doing the count in SQL versus doing like a dot count after we've already mapped it to the active record objects. But then figuring out how to then share that object that also exposes this total count method on it to another class that was then working and then presenting these objects was tricky. I mean, do I provide like a double to that test and then just pretend like it's sort of like this object, but there's also this additional method that you can call on it. And I try really hard to avoid using like mocks and stubs and doubles in my tests where I can. So yeah, that was one of the parts. And then there was somewhere else where it took me a little bit to figure out why there was a method defined on an object that when I looked at it, it wasn't obvious that this method responded to that call. And mm-hmm. then I had to walk backwards in the code to realize that it was because of the SQL how it was being built up that then I had access to that information. So I think that's the only reason it gave me uh, hesitation is it's not that I think there's anything weird about what Active Record's doing it. I just want a better way to present it to the next reader so that that way it's very clear to them that this is a roller coaster with a theme park name. Mm-hmm. So it's something that they just know exactly what they're working with versus having to go through that bit of journey that I went through. I think you've become uh, normalized to Rails's magic. <laughs> the fact that you're saying, like, I don't think there's anything weird about that. It is weird and magical and at times fantastic, but like this was the the other edge of that. The other thing I'll say on the not the roller coaster example, because I think that one's pretty clear and like mm-hmm. a roller coaster does have a theme park and it's a very literal sort of one to one mapping, but the total count thing that we ran into, that concept logically belongs to the collection, not mm-hmm. to an individual record. But I believe the way Active Record does it is that attribute, that special method was on every single record. Yes, you would dive into the first record of the collection and then you could ask for total count. And that part was surprising to me. And it's funny, yeah, when you were saying about the magical part, maybe this is sad, but I think of magical as kind of a bad thing. When I, I don't use it as a compliment when I say something's magical, just because to me that means that something is happening and I don't understand it. And that is more risky to then causing bugs or problems for me because I don't understand how it works. I still appreciate it because there's a lot that I don't understand in this world, but then it's also acknowledging that I don't understand how this works. So I just need to dig into it more. So yeah, magical is not typically a compliment in my world. I think I've gone through a very similar arc where initially like Rails magic and all of the code that you don't have to write was so wonderful. But over time, I've been bitten by it. I've had hard to chase down bugs. I've had surprising behavior. And slowly over time, that word has changed, at least when describing Rails and describing code, such that like, yeah, magic's, I, I don't know, maybe I don't want it. Maybe what if we just had a generator that spit out the code and then I had that and... Yeah, it's interesting that the evolution, at least for me, the evolution of my thinking around that. Yeah. 
Uh, so that was the uh, active record thing that I've run into that I'm still mulling over to figure out which way I'd like to test it. And that's kind of where I landed was using the presenter and then still building up some extra setup in the test to then let active record build the object in the way that it wanted to. And then I feel like you ran into some interesting migration stuff recently this week as well. I did. So as you highlighted, the system that we're working with, so we're both on the same project here, and the system that we're working with has a lot of data, a whole bunch, growing leaps and bounds every single day. And I ran into something that I run into infrequently enough that it has not gotten into muscle memory or into code memory or whatever you want to call it. But I had a migration that added a new column, which was non-nullable and had a default value. And I was adding it to a reasonably large table, like a table with millions, but not tens of millions of records, I want to say. And it's, uh, at least in production, there's a very beefy database, and that would be fine. But unfortunately, what we ran into is staging was significantly underpowered relative production. And part of the way this, uh, the whole app and the CI pipeline works is after something's merged to master, uh, CI will automatically deploy that to staging. Wonderful feature. Absolutely love that. But the deploys take a while, and then this migration was also taking even longer, partly due to the fact that we had, I think, only like a gig of memory for the database container that was running against staging. So the migration ended up taking too long, and there's like a 30-minute timeout as part of that process. I'm not sure which of the subsystems has that 30-minute timeout, but somebody is keeping an eye and not letting us, which, frankly, 30 minutes is too long. So I agree with that timeout. Is uh, it too long? What's, what's wrong with like a 40-minute deploy? It's just that much longer. So like if I merge a feature, the next thing that I want to do after it gets into master is go in and describe the acceptance criteria and sort of hand that back to product management. But I do want to make sure that like I'm copying staging URLs when I'm writing that up. I try to be very prescriptive in the acceptance criteria, not prescriptive per se, but very helpful. Like here's a page on which you can see it as opposed to go to a page that has the thing describing in general terms and giving more work to the product management team, because I, I know this, I'm in this code right now, I can find I probably have one of those open. So if I have to wait those 30 or random number of minutes, then it's got that latency built in. And then I don't know if you're like me, but if I have to wait 30 minutes to do something, I'm waiting an arbitrary amount of time. So I'm not going to sit there and wait 30 minutes, or I'm going to go do something else, I'm going to forget about it. And now I have a ticket that I finished, but is waiting is sort of sitting in the wrong column waiting for me to move it over. And in general, I want faster feedback in absolutely everything in my tooling. And so 30 minutes is like well past the line that I would want. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking more in like if we're deploying to production, like what's the difference between 30 and 40 minutes? But I understand you're talking about it's painful to wait on staging and then that deploy process. Also, I love what you just said about the travel tickets and being incredibly helpful so that someone can go to the ticket and just like click on a link and know who to sign in as or what data they'll need to be able to test something. I think that's awesome. There was a client that you and I both worked for a little while back where they did that, and I really appreciated it because when we pushed a ticket to staging or to a testing environment, any other developer could pick up that ticket and test it for another developer. So we could write the instructions in a way that anyone could pick up that ticket and then test it for us. So then we could hop into Slack and be like, hey, would someone test this ticket for me? And I've always carried that forward with the intent of, I would love for anyone to be able to test this ticket. It doesn't have to be someone with specific domain knowledge about the app to be able to drive it forward. I think I agree with the sentiment of, I want anyone to be able to, like, I should be able to describe it in a loose enough way that even if someone doesn't deeply understand the domain and all of that, but I feel like the conversation needs to get back into product management's hands. And so if it's developers approving other developers' work, 
unless we're having the conversations with the users or unless we're really close to the users, I worry that we're not the right people to review it from a, did we deliver the user-facing value that we were supposed to? I don't know that I trust us. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about it because I'm thinking that the product manager is involved in writing the tickets and then I could see, depending on the feature, yes, I could see there are cases where I'd certainly want the, the product manager to also get a pass at it just to make sure that it's behaving in the way they expected. But for a lot of other tickets, I think I'd be comfortable with developers testing it as long as we've scoped out the, the ticket well and we understand the user benefit. And that's the other part. If the ticket describes how the user is going to benefit from this change, I think that helps. So then that way someone's testing it from the view of like a product manager and not from like the developer, like does it work, but more of like, does this help the user? Yeah. And I guess actually now to, to completely invert what I said earlier. I can see that actually being really beneficial because I'm a big believer in getting developers more into that mindset, Mm -hmm. thinking about it from the user perspective as opposed to, well, what happens if I put a negative number in this text box, (laughs) which is also useful and there's absolutely a place for that. But I care much more about making sure we're delivering value to users and the more that everyone on the team is thinking in that mindset then. So yeah, I'm going to completely reverse my opinion from earlier. Excellent, (laughs) excellent uh, debate. Just depends on the, the scenario. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Indeed Prime. Are you on your way to work right now? On your way out? Are you dreading coming into the office? Stop living for the weekend and start doing what you love with Indeed Prime. They'll help you skip irrelevant engineering product design and other tech roles and help you go further in your career. One free application on Indeed Prime puts tech candidates in front of thousands of companies like PayPal, Twilio, and WP Engine across more than 90 cities. It's simple. They'll match you to the right role based on your needs. Other candidates also get one-on-one access to technical career coaching, resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips to help seal the deal. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now at www.indeedprime.com slash thoughtbot. That's www.indeedprime.com slash thoughtbot. But going back, so what happened with the slow deploy and you're trying to add the column, but I think it was causing the deploy to fail. Yes. There's sort of a bunch of runaround that happened. Unfortunately, we ended up in that situation where this failed and then there was a sequence of other things that became more complicated. And then there was actually another migration that was adding a database constraint, a uniqueness constraint, but there was non-unique data on staging and production. So that was causing a failure and everything was rolling back. But again, because of the latency, like this now spanned a few days. All the work that needed to get deployed, like for many reasons, this was less than ideal. We ended up, uh, I'm trying to remember the specific sequence. I think we upped the memory on staging. And I think staging was able to do it. But if I remember, the actual approach that was discussed was deploy directly to production, migrate on production, copy that data back to staging, and then from there, everyone's good and we're okay. (laughs) I forget if that's actually what happened, but it was this interesting thing where the database on production is just significantly more powerful. And we're seeing this actually throughout the app of queries take a very long time in staging, but we as the developer team have sort of lost our sense of, is that like very bad or just the normal amount? Like, is this just staging doesn't have enough memory? And so now queries aren't able to keep everything in memory. Instead, they have to page disk and suddenly you get fundamentally different performance characteristics, but in production, it's fine-ish. And so it's sort of an example of production staging parity or where we've we've lost some of that and how, mm-hmm. even though it seems like a subtle thing, like, yeah, production's typically a more powerful environment, we're starting to feel the pain of that. 
Yeah, I lost confidence in that testing a ticket this week as well, where we were testing on not on staging, but on another sort of integration testing environment, and something was failing. And I was like, I suspect it's just because this environment has too much data, and we haven't given it the RAM and power that it needs to handle the size of a database. So then I went through the steps of scaling that particular container up and adding more memory for the database. But even then, I was still running into problems where I just didn't know, like, is this is this something with the code that we've introduced or is this something with the environment that I'm testing on? And at some point, I felt more confident that it was specific to the environment. So we moved it back over to staging and things were fine because staging was in a more powerful place than the other environment. But having that disconnect is confusing because, yeah, you don't know at that point if it's related to something that you've introduced or how things will handle on production. I think there was another way that we discussed adding that column. Do you remember one of the other approaches we could have taken that would have been a safer way to migrate and add that column? I think I loosely remember. It ends up being uh, like multi-step, multi-deploy sequence where you add the column and then that gets deployed. And so now you have this column, but it is nullable. So you can have null values in there. And then maybe through a rig task or something like that, you backfill the data to get it into the non-null space. And then I think another migration after that to get it. Do you remember? I feel like I might be missing a step in there, though. I think there's just one step in between there. So we can run a migration that adds the column without the default value. So as you mentioned, it can be null. uh, And then add another migration that will then change the default value. And that's not going to backfill all of the existing records for that column. It's only going to add that default value for newly inserted records. So it's not going to lock the table. It's not going to cause any concerns with the migration. That's going to make it slow. And then from there, the next step, or on step three, you can backfill all the existing columns through a rake task, or you could do it through a migration, depending on your preferences. And then step four, you can then add that not null constraint, and that should be a safe and quick migration to add. And then step five, you can now start to work with the column. So there may be other ways to do it, but I think that was one of the approaches we talked about that would have been safe and incremental in each step and would have been zero downtime for deploy and making sure we're never locking that table. That sounds like the list. (laughs) Step six being profit, of course. Oh, Um, yes, step six, profit. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, I want so much to not have to do things like that, like in terms of the latency that I was talking about earlier in the feedback cycles. Like, I just want to have this column in production and be able to use it. Ideally, like have that go out as one deploy and then we're just done. But in reality, we still have these concerns to think about. And uh, I think fundamentally, one of the things that I ran into with my migration is the operation of adding a column with a default value and a non-null constraint to start is a locking operation, I believe. So it locks the table for writes for the period of time that that's running. And because it was a larger table that I was working with, that's a, an extended lock. And so that becomes like there were a bunch of jobs that were failing in the background because it couldn't write to that table. So that's the part that as I was introducing this whole concept of like, I remember this once every six months, year, it's the idea of like, there are safe things to do in migrations, there are less safe things to do in migrations. We didn't go so far as to implement either of these, but there's active record safer migrations, and then strong migrations, which are both gems that you can add that will, I think they had a build step or they basically analyze migrations and make sure you're not doing things like I did and possibly locking the database or taking down production with things like that. And These become very real concerns the larger the system gets and the more traffic and the more writes and reads and things like that. So, yeah, lots of lessons. Yeah, I saw that, Jim. I haven't used it, but it looks pretty neat. I'd be interested in 
exploring that gem further because I think it does exactly what you just said where it will analyze the migration and then it will raise an exception to let you know that you're introducing a migration that will potentially lock the table or just be not safe for deploy, which is neat just because I'm like you where I've worked on some larger applications, but then I'll go a year where I'm working Mm -hmm. on smaller applications and then I don't have to worry about this stuff. And then I'll go back and I'm having to reach back into my memory to be like, oh, yeah, this is important. And I need to pull those skills back in of like how to safely deploy changes to large tables. Nothing else, even if not adding it to the system, the strong migrations particularly, the readme for that gem has a wonderful concise summary of each of the different operations, which ones causes, can cause downtime or errors or things like that, and uh, suggestions as to strategies to mitigate that and all of that. So for anyone out there that's running into similar things, I highly recommend at least scanning the readme on that one, but also potentially adding that to the project because uh, yeah, it's nice to automate these things when we can or at least have you know more visibility into it. Definitely. I ran into a similar experience this week where I need to add an index to a larger table that has, I want to say, over a million records, so sizable. And I want to make sure that there's zero downtime with the application when adding that index to this table. So looking through ways to do that, I discovered that Postgres supports that you can add an index concurrently which is really neat because initially adding an index is going to lock that table. You can still read from the table, but you just can't perform any writes to it. And if you add the index concurrently, then you can still read and write and perform like deletions and upserts to that table while it's building that index. So you can still continue for your app to work while it's working on that index behind the scenes. The considerations to use with using the concurrent index approach is it has to do two table scans instead of one. So it's going to scan the table initially when it's creating and building the index, but then it has to wait for any current transactions that could potentially affect the index that's being built. And then once those transactions are complete, then it can do a second sequential scan of the table to then finish building it. One of the other interesting parts of the concurrent index building is it could fail as it's going through. So let's say if it's a unique index that you're building and it does its first table scan and it's building the index and then on the second table scan it encounters a duplicate record, then Postgres is going to identify that index as invalid. So you're now in a state where you have an index, but it's an invalid index. So Postgres won't use that when it's running queries. So it's not going to give you a performance boost, but you still have the overhead of maintaining the index at that point as well. So you kind of got the worst of both worlds. Wow, that's a terrible situation to end up in. (laughs) And it's not too bad going forward from there because essentially you, you have to drop the index and then address the problem and then rebuild. So there's certainly ways out of it and ways around it. But it's just one of those. When I was first reading about it, I was like, yeah, this is great. Why don't why don't we just do this all the time? And that, that's some of the reasons to Seems not like it's do all it. upside down. Uh, of course, there are trade-offs, yeah. trade-offs and optimizations. Uh, but it does seem like a really nice, like in the strong migrations, it has one of the items on the list is adding indexes non-concurrently. And that's just going to lock your table, which you don't want. And if you have smaller data sets, that may be okay. If you have a smaller app and deploying, that may not be a big concern. But if you're at the point that if you're interested in adding an index, you probably have a large enough data set that that's going to be a concern for your application. One of the other things with adding an index concurrently is it does increase the load on CPU and I.O. So it could impact the performance of your application in other areas. 
So it could slow down other queries or processes taking place. So it's still wise to be cautious as to when you make that change. Like probably look for a time that you have less traffic on the app that then you want to start building this index because it could still take a couple hours. Because even though it's in my particular case, I'm adding a column with no default value. So it's just going to be an empty column. And then I want to create an index. It's going to be a partially unique index on that column, partial just because there's going to be null values and... I won't go into the details, but that's okay in this particular case. <laughs> but building that index is still could probably take a couple hours just because it has to do two scans of the table. It's like all the fancy things of an index in one. Yeah. If I remember, there was also some discussion around the time it would take to get that. So similar to my migration, actually having difficulty deploying. I think this one, there were some concerns around that. And there was, a, I think, an interesting discussion there. There was some sequence of similar to like add it and then drop it and then do a thing. But... So there were some conversations because I was taking over the PR for someone else who went away for some vacation. And so I I was coming up to speed on the work and there were some conversations around what we were adding and if the index needed to be unique. And then I noticed the table that we were adding the index to and I, I realized this is a very large table. This is perhaps a concern. And so some of the steps we talked about were the first step could be just to add the column. And then we'd have the column available, and then we could add the index following that, and then have another PR that actually interacts and writes to the column. So to try to space it out in steps like that. So that way, when we add the column, that could still be run within a transaction. So that will be rolled back in case for some reason something failed. And then in another migration, build the index, because there is a chance that that could fail, and then we'd be stuck with that invalid index, although... It's probably not likely, but just something to think about. And then proceed with adding the actual application code that will interact with the column. So a couple of steps to go through. And that's probably the most painful part, in my opinion, because I actually really enjoy learning about how to safely change the schema for large databases, because that's a real problem that so many people are facing daily with their applications. So that stuff is really neat. And then just having the conversations as we get more experience with it up front to say, okay, we know we need to add an index. Let's go ahead and start planning for it ahead of time. So then we don't have work that gets blocked for a couple of days. And we already know going into it versus when you've already done the work and then you have to go back and be like, oh yeah, I need to account for how to roll this out safely. And then work that's completed could have gone out sooner. So I think it just comes down to realizing up front that there's a certain process that will need to be followed to make it a a safe deploy. And that helps with the overall feeling of it goes from being tedious to a more agreed upon, like this is the approach we'll take. Yep. I think maintaining that cadence of shipping and getting features out there and those are the things that I want to strive for. And like you said, I, I also love working more in the database. There are a lot of areas of programming where I spend some time, I learn a new thing and I'm like, oh, that's cool, but it's sort of off on its own. Basically, anytime I invest in getting better at working with databases and learning SQL and things like that, I find is a really good investment. Like It's been one of the few truly constant aspects of my work for the entirety of my development career. And I kind of just want to put more things in the database and trust the database more over time. On that note, actually, there is a gem that I haven't actually gotten to use yet, but I'm very excited that it exists. It's the active record dash PG underscore enum, because sometimes we mix dashes and underscores. But its goal is to allow active record and allow Rails to use Postgres enums natively. So active record has enums. You can say like, oh, mm-hmm. the state field, it's active, it's a draft, it's whatever. But those end up mapping to integers in the database. And then Rails is doing some Rails magic to cast to and from. 
Uh, and at this point, it actually, as far as I understand it, the formal support within Rails, it is recommended that you don't use strings in the database or an enum at the end of the day. So you end up with these very opaque values in the database, and you don't actually have a constraint in the database around the valid values. Sorry, when you say don't use strings in the database, you mean don't use like a string representation of like that enum? Yes. Or so like you don't want active in quotes, something like that? Okay. Yeah, so you're using integers like 0, 1, 2. Mm -hmm. And then as you add new ones, you know, if you say like semi-draft is a new state that this thing can have, that will be integer 4. It would be much better if that were the string semi-draft. Right. Or if draft were draft or active were active, both in terms of being able to look at the database and understand what it means but currently, there is that limitation in Rails's implementation of enums, whereas Postgres enums, Postgres has native support for this idea. So state can be an enum within the database. It is constrained at that level to be whatever the multiple states are. Um, and then you can add them, and you can extend it, and all sorts of nice things. And you get that data consistency all the way down in the database. It's the best option. That's cool. Is this recent? How did you come across this? Uh, yeah, I think this is a very recent gem. I feel like probably a few people have tried, and I know this is a thing that folks have talked about for a while, but I just happened to see this gem come by, and I haven't actually used it. So uh, I don't know if there are any edge cases or complexities associated with it, but I'm super excited that it exists and that this idea is a thing that we can you know, explore and, again, put more stuff in the database because I trust the database most of all. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Have you pulled it into any fun projects just yet? Nope. Still just a thing I'm reading about on the internet but I'm very excited to be reading about it on the internet. Yeah, that's really cool when you can go to the database and still have that accurate or helpful representation. Because, yeah, looking at a one or two, it's like, I don't know what that means. And you have to hop back over to your code to find out. And then the data consistency things as well, because if you make it an integer field, as you would normally do with the current implementation in Rails, there's nothing stopping me from going into the console and just putting in a four, even though one, two, and three are the only valid values. Oh, I see. Is there an perhaps an index, like a constraint that's being added to where it can only be these string values? I'm not exactly sure how Postgres implements its enums. It might be that they're using an index under the hood or, or similar mechanisms, but a an enum within Postgres is a type. So in the same way that you can have like a text field or a Boolean field or an integer field, you can also have an enum field, and it maps to this named enum that you've created. And so the value, although it will look like a string, is actually... It's stored, again, I don't know the exact storage mechanism, but Postgres will actually constrain it such that you can only enter those valid values. So the same way that Rails does it, but at the application layer, that's now pushed all the way down into the database. I think of it the same as like if you have a presence validation in Active Record, you definitely want to also have a non-null validation or, or constraint within the database because the database is going to be the more correct thing. It's the end of the line. And so if we can do the same thing with enums, that's fantastic. I want to live in that world. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, so we now need a new fun project to replace Tell Me When It Closes Mm -hmm. with a project that pulls in strong migrations and pulls in PG Enum. I think that's all we've got so far. It needs GraphQL as well. (laughs) And Graph, of course, course. GraphQL. Why not? We need that in there as well. (laughs) And then we'll figure out what it does later. (laughs) That's the least important part. Code's just fun. It's the users. They get in the way. Hey, (laughs) that's what Fridays are for. Cool. Uh, With that, I think we've been rambling for a bit so we can wrap things up. We do have some listener questions, but we're going to save those for next time. But please keep sending us more listener questions because we love reading them and then we love responding to them here on the show. Yep. And we'll definitely make sure the next episode has plenty of room for them. So hosts at bikeshed.fm or Steph or I on Twitter. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. 
If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at underscore bike shed or reach me at S Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.